You are listening to Holy Heresy, a podcast that explores the evolution of faith in these challenging times. Whether you have a lot of faith, a little faith, absolutely no faith, or are of another faith, it is our hope that these podcasts will help you find your place in the ongoing conversation that has been evolving forever. This series on banned books is brought to you by First Congregational Church of Los Angeles. When Michael laid out the plan for Eastertide this spring, we were all in agreement this was the time for a series on banned books. While banning books is not a new phenomenon and has been with us literally for centuries, it has made a stunning comeback in recent years. School boards, libraries, local, state, and national governments, everyone's getting into these discussions that have become quite acrimonious. Religion has been front and center in many of these fights. The long history of the Church has been filled with banned books since soon after its beginning. Early on, as the stories of the Jesus movement began to be written, the debate over which books were acceptable and which books were not approved for a wider audience became a point of contention. Some books were lost, some books were banned, some books were made illegal, especially in the Roman Empire as it confiscated Christianity. James Bean reminds us there is a very long list of hidden, banned, forbidden, censored, condemned, cursed, and even burned books that were once considered holy scriptures. The Gospel of Mary is one of the books that disappeared for over 1,500 years. Believed to have been written in the second century CE, a small fragmentary copy was found in the 19th century. While additional fragments in Greek were found in the 20th century, no copies of the entire gospel have ever been found. It is probably lost to us forever. So we have then a non-canonical gospel, which, as Michael told you at the beginning today, means it didn't make the cut. It was not included in the year of our Lord 692 when the decisions about which books were in and which books were out was made. We might ask, then, why should we care about this gospel and others like it? Why should we care about stories we have to struggle to read, much less understand? Why should any of these hidden, banned, forbidden, censored, condemned, cursed, and even burned books enter into discussions in our time and place? The answer is rather simple. When we bury the multitude of voices contained in these books, we are left with only part of the story. The dominant stories and narratives that we know as historical fact have been written by the powerful. When we disregard the stories of those who were suppressed, we cede our power to those in control, and in essence, we deem the stories from the margins as illegitimate. Our Gospel reading this morning is one of the few passages about Mary of Magdala found in the New Testament. Even though her appearances in the Gospels are rather brief, 
If we have been in any kind of church somewhere in our lifetime or seen Jesus Christ Superstar or the Da Vinci Code eons ago, we believe we know who she is. One of the central elements of Mary Magdalene's story center around her being a prostitute. Yet what is now known is that this popularized, centuries-long characterization of her is not found in Scripture. The discovery of several earlier manuscripts has provided a broader picture in which Mary Magdalene is unexpectedly prominent. She was a leader, a prophet, a mystic. She was praised and loved by Jesus, and she was in conflict often with the other disciples. There is a feeling among many that the Church covered up this Mary, and in doing so, betrayed its faithful by suppressing feminine metaphors for God and female leadership, both past and present. Many feel a reclaiming of Mary Magdalene and her story fulfills the desire, both popular and scholarly, to rethink the norms that have come out of the traditions of the Church. By once again hiding, banning, forbidding, censoring, condemning, cursing, and burning books, we have taken away the witness of those whose stories were vital to the narratives that became sacred. While a variety of banned books, especially in religion, bring new light to the past, many of our modern-day banned books attempt to bring light to the future. It is debatable when dystopian literature began to evolve. Some say it was a direct result of utopian literature. So one could argue that it is a fitting description of the beginning of Genesis in the Hebrew Bible and its story of the Garden of Eden. The origins were certainly very early, but it wasn't until the end of the 19th century that dystopian literature found its way into the portion of the modern era we are most familiar with. Dystopian tales imagine the impossible to imagine. Whether it is a civilization destroyed by a nuclear holocaust, zombie hordes, or an alien invasion. I personally can do without the first two, but you know, those alien invasions really are quite interesting. And yes, a number of the books that we find on the banned books list are dystopian literature. The current call for the banning of books appears to want us not to look to the past or look to the future. Yet without understanding our past, we cannot authentically live in the present. Without facing trajectories as we are barreling forward, we cannot have a future that is bright and beautiful without making some serious repairs. Which brings us to Margaret Atwood's book, The Handmaid's Tale. Earlier this spring, we had no idea that a draft of a ruling regarding a lawsuit around the 1973 Supreme Court decision on Roe v. Wade would come to light this particular week. Part of me wanted to change our course and only concentrate on the Gospel of Mary this morning. 
I quickly realized that was a coward's way out. Believe me, there are times I have no trouble taking the safe, cowardly approach. But I knew deep in my heart this was a time when I had to count the cost of what I would say today. To be honest, I had to make myself finish reading The Handmaid's Tale. And try as I may, I have not been able to get through the first season of Hulu's adaptation of Atwood's novel. It isn't because I do not like dystopian literature. But I have had a hard time with this depiction of the future. And while the world Atwood has created seems absolutely unbelievable, the core of her vision of this world does not. We are at least semi-aware of the injustices that women have endured, and yet we keep repeating those old stories. As I began to write this message on Thursday, the news from Monday night was like a cloud hanging over me. Even in the midst of a beautifully and wonderfully busy week, it was a hard week. And I was living somewhere between utopia and dystopia. So by Thursday afternoon, my notes didn't resemble a sermon at all. And even though I didn't call on them, the ancestors showed up. I had forgotten the exact date of Roe v. Wade. But when I saw it was 1973, it brought back a conversation I had with my mother a few days after the decision all those years ago. When I came home from school that afternoon, my mother had a snack ready at the kitchen table. I had outgrown snacks after school long before, so I wondered what this all was about. When I saw the tears in her eyes, I was afraid something had happened to my father or to one of my siblings. Before I could ask, my mother began telling me a story I had never heard before and I would never hear again. It was a story about my grandmother's sister, Pearl. My great aunt Pearl was married with two sons and a very successful husband when she died from a botched abortion in 1917. I have no idea if she tried to end the pregnancy herself or if a doctor tried to perform the abortion. What my mother told me is that she carried that baby for several more months before both she and the child died. Pearl was one of 17 children in her family. My great-grandfather was a Baptist preacher who had seven children with his first wife before her death and ch 10 children with my great-grandmother, Laura. Pearl's life growing up, as all of the siblings would say, was not easy. As my mother told me Pearl's story that afternoon, there was not one ounce of judgment in the retelling. There was only sadness in a renewed memory days after the law of the land changed 
to prevent such things from happening in my lifetime. In a 2017 essay about The Handmaid's Tale, Atwood described writing Ofred's story in the tradition of the literature of witness. She was referring to those accounts left by people bearing witness to the calamities of history they had experienced firsthand. Wars, atrocities, disasters, social upheavals hinge moments in civilization. It's a genre that includes the diary of Anne Frank, the writings of Viktor Frankl, and Alexander Solzhenitsyn. On that afternoon long ago, my mother, whose middle name was Pearl, gave witness to a story that occurred two years before she was born and 56 years before Roe v. Wade. It had affected her family and it had carried through the generations. She told that story, though, interestingly, with hope. With the hope that that story would never again happen to anyone she loved. Please understand, my mother was a very conservative Christian. She was also a woman who had known the heartache of women who had no choice. Margaret Atwood believes in the importance of agency and strength. She insists it does not require a heroine with the visionary gifts of Joan of Arc or the ninja skills of Katniss Everdeen. There are other ways of defying tyranny, of participating in the resistance, or helping to ensure the truth of the historical record. The very act of writing or recording one's experiences, Atwood argues, is an act of hope. Like messages placed in bottles tossed into the sea, witness testimonies count on someone, somewhere, being there to tell their story, to read their words, and to remember. So this week, follow the choir's lead. Read all the books in your library. Find one of the banned books this week, hopefully one written by a woman, and read it. On this day, we do remember, and we bear witness to the stories as we count the cost for how we will respond in our day and time. Amen. If you have appreciated what you have heard, we invite you to join the conversation in person or online each week. We also invite you to make a financial gift to help First Church continue being a community that reminds us how much we are loved by our Creator. To donate, go to fccla.org give. And share this podcast with the people you know 
that need to hear they are loved exactly as they are.